Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Back to John 4. Getting our way down to the end here. Verse 39, we have, it picks up, many Samaritans that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. Now that's amazing too because most culturally women were not believed. In fact, I don't know if you knew this, but women were not allowed to testify in court because they were not to be believed. You cannot trust the, the word of a woman. So they wouldn't let them testify in court. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves heard of him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. This is an amazing thing. Christ had, think about this, Christ had a divine appointment going through Samaria. All right? And this is where you see God's sovereign election and human choice merged together. Were these people elect if they believed and truly born again? Absolutely they were. But they had to hear the message, didn't they? They had to hear the word. And that's where Christ came in. And um, we see a lot of them come to faith. And this is interesting because, again, this is, this is totally outside the the realm of experience of the average Jew. They, they wouldn't talk to these Samaritans. It was, it was not possible for a Samaritan to come to the temple and worship. They weren't allowed to do that. And yet in the church, all those racial and national distinctions are erased. And even in Acts, what do you see? You'll be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Samaria. The innermost part of the earth. And it's interesting when Peter went up to the Samaritans and they believed and received the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues, he had to come back before the Jewish uh, muckety-mucks down in Jerusalem, remember? He had to give an account of himself. And how did he respond? Well, you know, I, I preached to them, I laid hands on them, they received the same Holy Ghost as we did. Uh, don't blame me, guys. God did this. Yeah, don't blame me. You know, what am I supposed to do? Um, and God was showing that the Samaritans are part of the church, as, as well as the Gentiles. So Christ witnessed, how did he witness? He said, I am. He said, I am the Christ. And, and he told them, you know, he, he, he offered, well, it didn't say exactly what, what content he said, but he said whatever, whatever he said, they believed that he was the Messiah. They believed that. All right. And I would take that as, as meaning exactly what it said. It wasn't just a heart belief. It was really a head belief as well. They, they really believed. The reason I bring that up is you've heard the people who don't believe the Bible, who don't believe Christ, Christ was the Messiah. Right. They said, well, just the Son of God. Of course, there's, there's, they can actually count the number of times he said, son of, I am the Son of God uh, in, in the kingdom. <laughs> Well, <laughs> you could have said I am Christ to hundreds of believers. Right. Samaritans, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the thing to understand, you got to understand the way these liberals do this thing. they got a really slick way of dealing with this. 
And that is, they say, Christ never claimed to be God. And I said, well, he says here he claimed to be God. Oh, yeah, but that was written back in from the church who put that in. He never really said that. I mean, that's the way they get around it. Um, you know, they, they discount, you know, whether it's sort of like um, they discount the evidence. And then when the evidence tends to go against them, they try to get the evidence thrown out of court. <laughs> that's sort of the way they operate. I've, I've been down that road. Um don't listen to people who say Christ never claimed to be God because in John 8, he said, before Abraham was, I am. And it said they picked up stones to stone him. And they said, why are you doing that? So not because of what you said, but because you claim to be God. They figured it out. The Jews knew what he was saying, even though the modern liberals don't. The Jews knew exactly what he was saying. Oh, I'm curious how stories like this get get written when it when Jesus is alone talking to the woman and then it, it says that they didn't ask him any questions about what he'd been doing or, or what he well, said. How do you think they found out? I mean does he tell the stories later around the campfire or he could have told them how else could they have found out? Well they tarried for two days. Yeah they were there for two days so they probably talked so the woman Someone. is telling so <laughs> And let's not discount the Holy Spirit who could have inspired John. But but by and large, and this is very important. You got to understand this. When, when John wrote the Gospel of John, when Luke wrote Luke, when Mark wrote Mark, when Matthew wrote Matthew, you got several dynamics coming into play when they when the, when they're authoring these books. Some would say Matthew heard a voice from heaven say, "Matthew, take a letter," and he had to dictate manually out exactly what this voice from heaven was saying. That's called mechanical dictation. Um, that's really not the way it worked. Now, are there some passages of the Bible where God dictated them? Word for word. Yeah, there are some where, where it was. Okay, But, by and large, how is the Gospels written? How is the Bible written? With personality and all yeah. of those. And it was a, there was a situation that caused the author to write, but God so moved the situation in the heart of the author that not only was he writing from his situation, but the Holy Spirit was superintending that rant. So it's called moved, born along by the Holy Spirit. Um, he filled the sails and, and bore them along. And when John wrote this gospel, John not only had his own experiences, right? But he had heard stories from Christ, from other disciples, possibly from from the Samaritans here. Those, those all became part of that. And the Holy Spirit brought those to his remembrance years later when he sat down and penned this. And Luke, it's interesting, Luke says how he wrote his gospel, remember? He researched it. How did Luke know what Mary said? Well, Mary told him <laughs> what she said. He, 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 he researched the the stories behind it, and talk to people, and 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 brought this information together. And of course, above it all, the Holy Spirit is superintending the writing of the Scripture. Let's not forget that. But John didn't write in a vacuum. John was a primary witness to many of these these incidents. He he was there. He saw them personally. And that's the answer to that. Um, On the record, right? Yeah. And then it says, now after the two days he departed and went to Galilee, for Jesus himself testified the prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, where didn't he go? 
Nazareth. Nazareth. Why? He's the homeboy, you know. Isn't this Jesus? I mean, I remember growing to school with him, you know, and isn't that, you know, he lived, you know, Joseph, that guy that we hang out with every day, you know, isn't that his brother? And the point is, he has no honor. So he came to Galilee, and the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. They had also gone to the feast. So this is not too long after the feast, right? And they saw what Jesus did with the cleansing of the temple and the signs that he did down there. <coughs> so when Jesus came again to Galilee, so he comes back to, to, or to Cana, evidently there was extended family or something. We discussed that in Cana. Um, where he made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. That's a city not far from there. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea to Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Uh, the nobleman had a son who was sick, right? And what evidently did he know Christ could possibly do? How many healings had Christ done to this point? None. Now there's there's a debate here. Um, what kind of signs did Jesus do down in Judea? Remember, it said he did signs down at the feast. It talks about signs. What were those <coughs> signs? Were they miracles? You know, whatever. Um, I tend to fall into the belief that this is probably the, although Jesus might have done some signs, as far as miracles go, I mean, really bona fide, you know, marquee miracles, this is the second one. And what's interesting here is that how did the nobleman know that Christ could heal his son when he didn't know that Christ was, at least Christ at this point was not known as a healer? Evidently, he saw something there. And what did Christ say? How, how do you interpret Christ's response? Unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Someone's trying to categorize them with the Pharisees. Well, now, what the problem with the Pharisees is they saw signs and wonders. What did they do? Still didn't believe. What do you think? What do you think Christ is, is get? Why, why? How do you interpret? Unless you people see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Yeah, but this guy he believed first What caused the Galileans to have interest in Christ? <laughs> It had nothing to do with who he was. It had nothing to do with his message. It had to do with the, the miracles that he did. What's Christ pointing at here? It's not about the miracles, it's about who he's doing them. Right. And there's a little bit of exasperation on his part, saying all you guys want are the tricks. But when it actually comes down to doing my words or believing in me, you're not there. Unless you people see signs and wonders. If, you, if there weren't any signs and wonders, you wouldn't take any notice of me. 
And this is something you've got to understand. You know, you might as well understand this. Again, get this out of the way. The average pagan is attracted to Christ not because he or she is enamored of who Christ is, but because there is a selfish motivation. Make me better, fix my life, give me happiness, joy, peace, heal my disease, whatever it is. But a pagan does not come to Christ for who Christ is, period. Romans 3 says that. You do not come to God. No one seeks God. You say, I know people are seeking God. No, they're not. What are they seeking? Help, joy, peace, you know, whatever it is, fulfillment in life. No one seeks God for who God is. Well, what do you think? If all you seek is salvation, it's still not. God uses God uses that to draw you to Him, but understand that people do not. We really got to get a hold of this. I think this this really. We get this idea that everybody out there is basically nice at heart, and if they just you know if they just didn't make a few bad choices, we'd be okay. Man is to pray. Nobody seeks God. A pagan does not seek God for who God is. A pagan seeks for joy, for happiness, for peace, for fulfillment, for whatever. And God is just a means to an end. Now, God uses that, that, that thirst or that desire at times, right? But what we're looking at here is is the motivation of the human being. No, and that's what Romans says. No one seeks God. They're all gone out of the way. No one. In your natural, unconverted state, you do not seek God. You have no desire to seek God for who He is. None. Everybody has emotions. Everybody. You go to church long enough, you'll get a lot of that. People will get in trouble. My dad's a minister, a retired minister. I couldn't, I could read name on my hands and feet time. People get in trouble in prison. They get religion. My dad goes down to Jerusalem, talks to them. They pray, cry, say they're sorry for what they did. Beg my dad to stand before the judge, tell him, you know, he's, he's making a turn for the right. And of course, he stands up with them, you know. Supports them in that time. Then, as soon as they get back out and the trouble blows over, they, they go back to the very same place they were before. Yeah, and, and see, we, we got to really, we have really, R.C. Sproul preached a great sermon on this. He called it the Pelagian um, bondage of the church. What is Pelagianism? Pelagianism is a fancy word from a guy named Pelagius back in the back in the time of Augustine, 300 A.D. time frame. And Pelagius basically believed that man in and of themselves was not sinful. He, did not, he denied original sin. Denied original sin. And basically said, God will never command you to do something that you in and of your own power and your own free will can do. Follow what I just said? He said, God will never ask you to do something that you, on your own, in your own strength, your own power, and your own will, cannot do. And Augustine says, that's not true. You, of your own will, your own strength, and your own power, cannot please God. 
That's Augustinianism. In the middle is a guy named Semi, who's a cousin of Semi-Pelagian. No, it's a joke. Semi-Pelagianism, which is really where a lot of our theology is today, which has this notion that somehow we have a free will, which we don't. We have a will in bondage. No pagan has a free will, a perfectly, completely free will. They have a will, right, to make choices. But what, what choices will they make? Yeah, a sinner will always make what kind of choices? Sinful choices all the time. Now, he might make a choice, A, that's not quite as sinful as B, but it's always sinful because his will is in bondage to his nature. And what is his nature? His nature is in darkness. He doesn't know God. He can't see God. He has no concept of what, he has no conviction over his sin unless what? God brings the conviction. It was often said that a guy came up to Spurgeon and said, you're always talking about the weight of sin, the weight of sin. He said, I don't feel any weight of sin. And Spurgeon said, well, if I take you down to the morgue and we take a dead body out and I put 500 pounds on the guy's chest, is he going to feel the weight? He said, well, of course not. He's dead. And Spurgeon said, well, you're spiritually dead. Of course you won't feel the weight. Understand that. People do not see God for who God is. And Christ here is, is you know, he, he's starting to key in on this. You, you, you people, you're not coming to me for my message, for the message of salvation and repentance and, and that I'm the Messiah. You're coming because you see me doing some miracles. And it's a neat new thing that you haven't seen before. It's a fad to you. It's a fad. It's a kick to them for someone that outwit this Pharisee. Yeah. And that is why I abhor and I have a visceral reaction against these birds that get on TV and somehow think that a miracle or a sign or some healing is going to convert people. No, it's not. Do you think that was kind of like trying to put the demons on the spot a little bit? No. Like, it, it, you know, like, I don't know if you're saying, like, if I don't do this, no, I don't think he was saying that at all. I think he was getting at, and, and you see this come again and again and again. You know, remember when he came across um, the, the the Sea of Galilee, when he went to the other side and all the people in the boats followed him. He said, you didn't follow me to hear a message. You followed me to get breakfast. Bread and fish. Yeah. You, you're not in it for, and, and see, that's why as believers, you know, authenticity, and I often pray, I want to know God for who he is, not for what I get out of the deal. Right? Look at the, look at the, the greatest relationships you have in life. Do you want to you have a relationship with somebody who's in it only for what they get out of the deal? How do you think God feels? You know, I really, I really, when I think about it, I really get convicted sometimes. It's like, you know, is God just my celestial Easter bunny? Is he the Santa Claus that I go sit on his lap and gimme, gimme, gimme? Or do I really want to know him for who he is, whether I get something out of it or not? Yeah. 
you know, I've, I've caught myself at times and I've tried to do it more and more when I come to God in prayer, just saying, I don't really want anything. I just, just want to be here. I don't, I don't, I don't want anything. Well, just from my own way, from MacArthur's uh, commentary, he was talking about levels of coming to Christ. Mm-hmm. He was saying there's, there's people that would come, that came to Christ just because he was present. And yes. Nathaniel and Philip. Yeah. Then he talks about the Samaritan woman that came to Christ because of the words he spoke. Mm-hmm. And she didn't have to see the miracle. Right. And then you're saying that uh, there's people that have to see the miracle, but nobody comes with pure motives. Is that what you're saying? Right. So, I'm looking at for, and God uses your impure motives. God uses them. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, you know, what Christ is trying to get at here, I think. And I think what, what saddens God a lot of times is a lot of times we come to him not for who he is, not because of his wonder and his majesty and because we just want to be with him, but because there's some deal we get out of it. There's something we get. So what was Nathaniel and Philip's motive? I mean, they just they came to Christ because he was there. He was there, and, and they, they, they were convicted by the Holy Spirit, and they saw him as the Messiah, and that drew him to him for what he was before he did any miracles. Before he was famous, they were there. Okay? okay. What I'm trying to get at here, you got to understand. Just go back, you just tripped me there. Could Nathaniel and Philip have been convicted by the Holy Spirit? Was the Holy Spirit in operation? Of course he was. Was there a, a hope of like nationalism for them? It may have been. Hey, Israel's saviors here. Yeah. So that is a sort of and and yeah for them as well. Yes. The the point is, you know, quite honest. Let's let's understand, folks. Although we do not have pure motives, God uses even our impure motives, right, to draw us to Him. Okay. It could be fear. It could be. You know, life situations. Um, Rahab, what, what, what brought Rahab to a saving understanding of God? Fear. We heard what happened to the Egyptians 40 years ago, right? And I don't know anything about your God, but I know this. He got rid of the Egyptian army, which is a pretty big deal. She didn't know a whole lot, but she, whatever she, and that's what great faith was. Did she have pure motives? Well, of course not. But God uses those longings, those aches, those pains, the circumstances of life, maybe trials, catastrophes, to bring us to a, to a to the end of ourselves sometimes, so that we can stop long enough to see Him standing there. He uses that, but we need to understand too. That in our ministry, it is not the miracles that attract. It's not the signs and the wonders. It is the drawing of the Holy Spirit that brings true <coughs> disciples. You can get all kinds of people following you by doing miracles. Look at Benny Hinn. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's got a whole menagerie of people following him because of supposed miracles he does. The nine members of the Trinity. Right? Yeah, all nine members in the Trinity and every other aberration he preaches. All right. <laughs> yeah, he said there's nine members in the Trinity. Um, you did. Benny Hinn is bad bananas. Take my word for it. He's bad bananas. You need to stay away from him. 
Do you think he really knows that he probably believes this stuff? He, he makes it up. He makes it. Well, he said the Father has a body, soul, and spirit. The Son has a body, soul, and spirit. And the Holy Spirit has a body, soul, and spirit, which sort of begs why it's all Holy Spirit. Um, so therefore, you've got three bodies, three souls, and three spirits, so there's nine members there. And he got that, of course, as a revelation while he was preaching. God just revealed it to him on the stage. You know, it's, it's, it's silliness. But what we're pointing at, and what we're going to see here, and, and this really plays out in John 8 coming up, when Christ starts talking about what it means to really be a disciple, and it said many of his disciples walk no more with him, because they weren't willing to pay the price. Christ had a lot of people following him around for the signs and the miracles and what they would get out of it, not for who he was. And at some point, look, look, folks, let's admit it. All of us came to Christ initially because of something we got out of it, right? But what should that develop into? Who he is. Who he is. Not for what you get out of it, but for who he is. And that as I'm getting older in my faith and as I mature slowly, <laughs> it seems sometimes, I'm starting to get this idea. It's all about the relationship. It's not about what I get. There's some wonderful things about being a Christian, but that's all the side benefit of knowing God. Knowing God is the real prize. That's the real prize. The fact that I get heaven, that's great. But no, but what makes heaven so great is God is there. Yeah. You know, and I can be with him and I can fellowship with him and talk to him. That's going to make heaven all of heaven. You know, the golden streets are nice. You know, the tree of life is nice. The water, pure crystal is nice. And that's all nice. But what really makes heaven heaven is I'm going to spend eternity in fellowship with the Father and the Son and be there. And it's not for what I get out of it, it's what God gets out of it. It's what's in it for Him. And even this morning as I as I drove to work, it's like, you know, Father, I want to be on your page today. I want to what's on your heart? How can I make you happy today? Not what do I get out of it, not make my day good, not whatever. Usually when I say make me give me a good day, it's it's hell on earth. You know how those work. You know, it's father. How can I be? How can I fit into your program? You know, how can I be part of your plan today? And and I wish I did that more. <laughs> I wish I did that a lot more. But just trying to see it from God's perspective. Bart, that's right. You know, whether you're on the same page with him or not, and I don't think he's there. I mean, Rick Warren, he establishes that premise early in his 40 Days of Book that you're created for that relationship. With God, and that's the first thing I think he brings out and stresses it. You know, the relationship, how how critical that is, because that's it. That's why he created you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you guys think, why did, why did Christ, here's a question, big question, why did God provide salvation? Why did God provide a way of salvation? What was his motivation in that? It's a relationship. Christ did not die to forgive you of your sins, and that's it. That's that's a very important component. 
But that was not the full reason he came. Christ did not die just to get you to heaven. I mean, that's great and wonderful. <laughs> but that's not the whole reason. Christ came and died to restore a shattered relationship with God. That's what it's all about. And heaven is part of that. Forgiveness of sins is part of that. That's all part of that. But what God, the big picture, the grand picture that God was doing in the death of Christ is to restore a shattered relationship. That's what it is. But I think we get stuck on the abundant life Christ came to The abundant life may not be here. Right, and, and we don't understand that. That's right. And that's why when you get these guys on TV that talk about health, wealth, and a Cadillac or a Rolls Royce or whatever prosperity. in prosperity, that you should run from that with with your ears covered. You know, switch the channel. You know, um, get away from that stuff because that is poison. That's not what Christianity is all about. It's not about me. Why did God save you? For your benefit? You think he'd saved you for your benefit? Did God save you to keep you out of hell? Is that why he saved you? No, it isn't. That's right. God saved you so that he could enjoy your fellowship throughout eternity. Now, that's a, that's a heavy thought, right? Why did God save me? So that he and I could... Enjoy fellowship throughout eternity. He didn't save me to keep me out of hell. That's a great and wonderful thing. That's not why he saved me. <clears throat> he saved me to enjoy a relationship with me. Now stop and think about that. God loved you so much, he wants to relate to you. Heaven is not about bowing down all throughout all of eternity and holy, holy, holy and playing your harp and all that other kind of stuff. It's a relationship with God. That's what it's all about. And Christ here is looking at the crowd saying, you know, so many of you, all you want is the tricks, the signs and the wonders. If I didn't do that, you wouldn't have any interest in me. You know, that relationship's right, too, and it's healthy. And you have that you know, one-to-one -one relationship with God, no matter what your circumstances are in your life, that relationship will overpower your mindset as far as your dealings with those external experiences you're going through. For example, you know, Paul and Silas, when they were in jail, you know, they worshiped God in the very depths of the dungeon after they'd been beaten, and, you know, they were singing songs of joy. How can you do that except that God's presence is so real in your heart and your life mm -hmm. that even in the midst of extreme pain and suffering, even in the midst of injustice, even in the midst of all the circumstances you're facing in life, something is in your heart and that relationship is, is right to the point that no matter how bad it is out there, your hope cannot be shaken because of the one you serve mm -hmm. and the one that's living in your heart through that Holy Spirit. In that relationship... And he's saying, don't worry, this is only temporary. Yeah, I like the way Paul puts it. Your light affliction, which is but for a moment. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, I've been lightly afflicted for 50 years. Oh, yeah. 
Well, you know, compared to eternity, what's that? It's nothing. It's a it's a perspective. I think in frustration, I've even looked at my circumstances and I've said, you know, if God doesn't put on us any more than I can bear, man, how strong does He think I am? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't. <clears throat> but even though this person here had possibly impure motives, what did Jesus say? Go your way, your son lives. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. This man merely believed what Jesus said. Faith. And he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. And he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And he said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. Now you say, well, okay, now wait a minute. It says in verse 50, he believed. It says in verse 53, he believed. Is he a schizo? Has he got multiple personality disorder here or something? No. What does it mean when you say he believed in verse 50? He, he, had faith. he believed what Jesus said. What does it mean he said when he believed in 53? He, he believed in who Jesus was. And how did he believe his whole household believed? This is a case where Christ's miracles brought true faith because the man saw what he did and it validated what Christ said and he believed. And this is the second sign Jesus did when he came out of Judea into Galilee. This is the second great miracle that he did. Verse 5, and after this, there's a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now we got another feast coming up. Okay. Um, and it said there, uh, now there's in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, a pool which in Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porches. And these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, then whosoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew they had already been there in that condition a long time. He said to them, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. This is the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. Now, one of the things in, that um, we're all big boys and girls in here, um, one of the things to um, talk about here is there's an interesting uh, issue here, textual issue, verse 4. It says, For an angel went down at a certain time of the pool and stirred up the water. New receptum first after the stirring of water was made well of whatever disease he had. I often read that, and I said, that's really confusing. This sounds really weird, right? Um, God sending an angel down and stirring up the water, and whoever got in there first got healed. I mean, that this is weird. Sounds a little mystical. Sound, doesn't sound too much like what God would be doing, is it? Well, um, the way to understand that and answer that is that verse 4 shouldn't be there. 
on the NAS feeder. Right. Now, I, I know the KJV only, if there's any in here, will immediately have cardiac arrest. Yeah. Um, but let's understand, you know, and, and now why do you say that? Well, when you look at the textual evidence for this verse, um, I don't have it before me. I have notes on it. Um, out on the website, you can go look at it. But um, in, the, in the bibliology section, there should be some notes out there on this particular verse. The, the textual evidence for this is very, very scant. In fact, all of the oldest manuscripts we have of John, every single one of them omit this verse. And so the question then is, well, how in the world then did this get in there? Well, most likely what it was is just a folk tale, right? Evidently, what you had here is a pool, and every once in a while, there was, you know, water would bubble up from underneath it or something. It would stir it up, and there arose this legend about, you know, an angel stirring the water. And somebody put that in a margin of a copy of the text, put a little note about this this story, and then that got brought into the text and later um, manuscripts. Because the older text, the oldest and most reliable text, do not have this passage in it. And plus, when you just read that, what does it sound like? Explanation as to why they believe. Yeah, it's an explanation is what it is, most likely. It's not there. Now, we can, we can battle that out, and you can... You know, you can write a paper on that and do your own research on it if you want. But I would say that that, that verse, it, it doesn't belong, it's not there, it shouldn't be there. But it was what the people believed. It was what they believed. They believed that, you know, this was a tale, a folk tale or whatever that had come up. And they, they had a few of these springs, you know, hot springs and that around Jerusalem and that. And probably this is where that story be, uh, originated. The pool of Bethesda. And so Christ comes and there's a guy there who's been paralyzed how long? 38 years. A long time. I mean, Christ knew he was there a long time. Can I offer an opinion? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> uh, you know, I've, I've been raised up very fundamental mm -hmm. conservative. Right. You know, all scripture is given by inspiration and good for reproof, rebuke, and exhortation. You know, I've been taught from as far back as I can remember, every scripture is in there, every dot, every tittle is according to God's holy plan. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for me to get away from that. Right. And when I look at that scripture, <clears throat> and of course I'm looking at it from the perspective of how I've been taught. Right. I see this man laying there for 38 years. Mm -hmm. I see him witnessing the events for 38 years. Mm -hmm. Every time water has been troubled. I see the events going on on a year-to-year -year basis, and that happening causes him to stay in that one spot right. by his family for 38 years, anticipating that moment when he could just happen to be the first one in the water. Mm -hmm. And for 38 years, now you think about doing something for a long time yeah. in that condition. His family had to take care of him. Somebody had to, somebody had somebody to take had care to of him. There. Somebody had to take him back. There was a whole effort around this man getting him there in that pool for 38 years. And by the way, this is also a place where they would collect alms, too. Yeah. And, and it's hard for me to believe anything other than what I read in that scripture, mm -hmm. based upon the experience yeah. of my youth being taught, plus in just looking at that man's mm -hmm. condition. Well, what I would, you know, I, I, this is probably, this is not the time to debate 
whether it should be, I don't believe it should, that verse belongs there, only because the manuscript evidence for that is very scant and very questionable, all right? But um, they, he certainly believed, right? And I think you're pointing that out very well. He certainly believed that if he was the first one and he'd be healed. He had 38 years of experience. Okay. Well, you, you know, he, I mean, after 38 yeah. years, if, if it wasn't real, or, saying, or it wasn't perceived, or it wasn't perceived to be real. I mean, there's the other thing. I mean, you look at some of the faith healings today that supposedly are healings but are not really healings. People think they're healed. You know, evidently there was there was a mythos that grew up around this spot. And MacArthur, maybe MacArthur has some stuff on that um, in his commentary where he discusses the textual components of this or not. I know it's in the King James. That's why I mentioned that. And I know a lot of people just really nervous when you do that. It's hard for me. Yeah. And I'm not going to Christianize anybody. No, no, no. And, and and my only my only my only um challenge to to you is you know at some point you know take a course in in textual criticism and how we got the scripture that we have, and far from destroying your your faith and credibility in it, it will strengthen your faith and credibility. And quite honestly, within the, the King James particularly, you can count on one hand the number of passages that fall into this category, literally on one hand. None of them will, will at all impact your eternal destiny, <laughs> in spite of what Jack Hiles will say. Um, none of them will impact your eternal destiny. Um, your, job, you know, your job as a textual critic is to do the best job you can to accurately translate the text as best as you can. And we're going to hit another one of those in John. John the, 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 role, the, the account of the woman taken in adultery is another one. Um, do I believe that that was part of the original gospel of John? No, I do not. Do I believe that it was an accurate account of something that happened? Yes, I do. Okay. Um, but I don't believe the textual evidence would support that being there. All right. And we can debate that. You know, there's debates on that. Um, and, and probably the best way to do that is to take a good course in textual criticism. We we did that in our bibliology course a few semesters back where we really they're, they're, literally I'm serious. There's only about there's there's a there's a scant handful of these passages that are really problematic. Um, but I bring that up because if you look at an NIV or a NASB, it's either not there or it's annotated. Right. It's All right. Right. Let me make an observation. You know, because you know, you talk about those TV ministers and you say run from them, mm -hmm. and that's the same upbringing I've been taught. You know, if somebody tells you the scriptures in error in any manner, shape, or form, you run from them. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's my mindset. Right. And then you know, as I look at it from a a concerned person trying to do the right thing, trying to believe. God's holy word. I, I've come to the conclusion, if I make a mistake in my doctrine, and I'm sure when I get to heaven there's going to be areas that I'm not going to be perfect in, but I would love to be able to say when I face God, when in doubt, God, I just accepted what I read in this word mm -hmm. as close to the text as it read without reading anything into it or taking anything out. And you know what, and that's, that's the same desire that people have that would dispute that. You know, because one of the things that they do, um, I know we're getting 
lot. Yeah, we're getting off on this. But one of the things they do is they, they toss out that verse. If you add to the scripture, God's going to yeah. add the plagues. If you take away, he's going to take your name out of the book of life. The problem is that very text that they use, that very verse, all right, there is no Greek manuscript on the planet that has take your name out of the book of life. Every manuscript says it takes your name out of the tree of life. You take away your part from the tree of life. Every one of them. But the King James has book of life. And you say, well, where did the King James get the book of life? And it's because Erasmus, who translated the Greek text, or who came up with the Greek text from which the King James is derived, didn't have the last six verses of Revelation, so he translated it from the Latin to the Greek to include it. And he misread Liber, which is the book, the word for book, could also mean tree, and he translated it as book, not tree. But every Greek text on the planet has tree, not book. But the answer is, if your name is not in the book of life, or your part is taken out of the tree of life, where are you? You're not there. <laughs> okay. So, so theologically, all right, there's no difference. Although the what, what as a textual purist, what would you want to see? You want to go to original. I want to try and find what is the original word, and the original word for every manuscript we have in the Revelation, without exception, all of them is tree, not book. Every single one of them. All right, so we should go with tree, but the King James went with book. But your name is not going to be, you're not going to miss heaven if you think it's tree, not book. All right, and, 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 and that's the counterbalance. All right, this counterbalance. And the thing you have to ask yourself is I want to get as close as possible to what I think or, or the evidence tells me that the text actually said. Taking that verse out does not alter the significance of this passage one bit. Because what's the point of this passage? The point of this passage is not to talk about how the water stirred and all that. The point of this passage is what? It's giving you the background information. Jesus healing the guy which precipitates the fight with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. That's that's the significance of this. All right. You know. I was going to say that just reading the book of John, it just doesn't fit. Practically, mm -hmm. it doesn't fit. And, and you know, I'm taking the class, um, hermeneutics. Mm -hmm. You know, with the textual criticism, and that it, it, it just makes sense that that doesn't belong. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't alter the significance right. or the meaning, or if that, and that's the that's the that's the one thing you know. A lot of times the the KJV only people just you know they think well you know if you you know if, if you have a verse and you say well the original text doesn't say the Lord Jesus Christ it says Jesus Christ say, oh you're denying the Trinity well no you're not not at all because there's a thousand other verses that has the Trinity in them you're not doing that all you're doing is saying. What did John, when he sat down and he wrote this, what did he originally write? That's all you're trying to do. Right. You're trying to be honest about it. Well, I'm just saying you that, know. That, that I shouldn't have even brought that up, no, but right. <laughs> well, no, I had to, yeah. Right. But the statement doesn't fit with yeah. John because he's just practical. He talks about everyday things. And that was a myth. And that was not an, yeah. an, an, just an everyday account. But I do think it was an accurate, uh, it's an accurate account of what people believed yeah. happened. You know, what they believed happened at that time. 
And, and of course, this guy's sitting there for 38 years. It's a long time waiting in his mind. If, he could, if I could just get in the water first, I'd be healed. And he doesn't get in there for 38 years. And Christ comes up to him. And Christ, of course, knew he was there. said, uh, how long you want to be healed? Now, why did Christ ask him that? Maybe he was content with his life. There's something to understand, and that's the other thing that um, you got to watch from the boys on TV. The guys on TV, you know, the faith healers, you know, they talk about getting healed. And if somebody's not healed in their theology, whose fault is it? You don't have enough faith. Let's understand something right up front. In the scripture, a person's healing... 99% of the time was not based on their faith at all. It was based on the faith of the person doing the healing. So the response is, no, Benny Hinn, it's not that I don't have faith, you don't have faith. Because if you had the faith, you'd be able to heal me. This guy, did this guy they have any inkling that Christ was going to heal him? Did they have any concept that Christ was going to heal him? Not at all. It certainly wasn't his faith, right? Now, were there instances where, where faith was a component? Yeah, but by and large, remember when Peter and John came to the gate? Beautiful, right? Guy was there. Yeah. Silver and gold I have, but such I give, give I in the name of the Son of God, stand up and walk. Jesus now stand up and walk. And the guy stood up and walked. The guy was not looking for healing that day. He was looking for a handout. He, he certainly didn't have any faith. Peter and James said, now if you really, Peter and John said, now if you really believe you can get up, it wasn't their faith at all. And Christ is, is and, and I know, you understand what Christ is doing here. There's one part of Christ that says, I can't precipitate a fight with the Pharisees. There's another part of him that just wants to confront their hypocrisy. Their total hypocrisy. And he goes up to this guy who's been there for a long time. And why does he pick a guy that's been there for 38 years, do you think? Everybody knows the guy. Yeah. It's like the guy who was born blind. Remember, we're coming come up to John 11. Well, well, who sinned, his guy or his parents? And Christ said, well, neither one of them did. Um, he was born blind so that I could come and heal him at this time so the power of God might be manifested. That's why he was born blind. And when he was, when he was able to see, there was nobody could dispute the fact that this was a blind guy. I mean, he was really blind. He's been that way for a long time. Barty. You said he wanted to uh, confront their hypocrisy. Isn't that a, several verses? I think it's in Luke where he does that. You know, woe to you when yeah. you Matthew 23 does that. And the Luke, he does that. Yeah, it's hypocrisy. Yeah, I mean, you really level But Christ sees this paralytic man laying there. And in verse 8, he says, Rise up, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. The guy picked up his pallet, whatever he was laying on, and walked. Now, this guy had been, now he didn't, notice what he didn't need here. He didn't need rehab. He didn't need physical therapy. I remember talking to somebody, they went and got healed by Ernest Ainsley. I said, are you okay? He said, well, we're getting better. <laughs> okay, now you were healed, but you're getting better. You know, you don't see that in the Bible, right? You know, Bartimaeus does not say, well, I, I'm getting better. I can't see yet, but I'm getting better. No, he saw. 
the paralytic got up and walked immediately. I, now, understand, how? when was the last time this guy walked? 38 years ago. All right. Yeah, now, now think about the miracle there. Actually, yeah. Probably Atrophied. Yes. And the and the ability to to walk without having walked for so many years. Yeah. Well, I was going to talk about her insanity. I mean, I've seen that not recently, but that used to drive me nuts watching that. You know, with him, I mean. It reminded me of like maybe James Brown or something. <laughs> he was out there, you know, <laughs> you know, moving around. I just can't, I can't understand. I don't know yeah. where are they coming from. You know? I, I don't either. <laughs> yeah, I feel good. <laughs> Pardon? This tactic teaches us also his confidence. He never gave up. This guy never gave up. He, you know, well, he had no. Well, he had nothing to do, like, like, like you said over there. You know, yeah, it, yeah. There was a desire for him to do the, and Jesus Christ said, "Get up, and walk." Yeah. So when, he, when Christ asked him the question, "Will thou be made whole?" That, that might have been a real question to this man. Do you really want to get better? You still want to stay here begging for all. Because from that point on, he had to work for it. Yeah. And here's the interesting thing. And that day was a Sabbath. Now, you understand. I did I did a study of this, actually, interestingly. If you go out to the website and look under Life of Christ, there's a, a section called Conflict with the Pharisees. And you know that almost every knockdown, drag out fight Christ had with the Pharisees was over what? Sabbath day. Christ has had, he took, I think, just perverse joy in healing on the Sabbath just to rile them up. And when you go back and look at the Mishnah, they had more rules about the Sabbath than, whew, I'll tell you. Well, could it be that Jesus healed every day and it just happened to be the no, Sabbath? I, I think. The yeah, but I think I think there was a sense in which Christ took joy at exposing their 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 hypocrisy. You know, they had this thing where some called a Sabbath day's journey. All right, you can only walk X, you know, like a quarter of a mile or something on the Sabbath day. Any more than that, you're working. You can't go farther than that. All right, well. How do you measure a quarter of a mile? I think it's about a quarter of a mile. I can't remember exactly what it was. So, well, it's from the gate of your house. Okay. So, what's the gate of your house? Well, they made the gate of their house the farthest point they could from their house to extend the distance they could walk so they wouldn't violate the Sabbath. And then, they, you know, if you're, if you're a scribe, you can only write like one or two letters. Anything more than that was work. I mean, and what what you find with the Pharisees and, the, and them done, they had made the Sabbath day an onerous thing. Why did Christ? Why did God originally design the Sabbath? <clears throat> For our benefit. One day where you did not have to work. It didn't say you couldn't eat or you couldn't walk or you couldn't. It just said one day where you did not have to go out and labor and do your job of rest and they blew it out and they made all these rules and regulations 
and and they would sit and they would argue about them for hours. It's like it's like people get it's like getting a Baptist convention together and talking about playing cards. I mean, you could go on for hours, you know. Well, you can play cards, but you can't use a king and an ace and a queen. But you can use a rook deck. That's okay to play yeah. rook, but don't. And on and on and on and on they went. Um, and Christ is exposing them here. And of course, being the fastidious, fair, this is interesting. Stop and think about this. This is what I find amazing. You know, we'll probably, you're the average Pharisee. And you look up and you see this guy that has been paralyzed for 38 years. You had to walk over the bugger every day on your way to prayers. You probably had to give the guy your alms for 38 years. And he's walking down the street carrying his bed. And the first thing that goes through your mind yeah. is, it's Sunday, what's he doing? Oh, Sabbath. Yeah. Or Sabbath, what's he doing? That shows how pinheaded, I like that's a good word, that's a good Bill O'Reilly word, how pinheaded we can get when it comes to this stuff. I remember the story of a lady who was going through a divorce and seeking for, you know, needed some spiritual help and went to a certain church in the area which had grace as part of its name and she was asked to leave because she was wearing slacks. Oh my God. Wow, that's, that, that's a good testimony for Christ. You missed the point, guys. Pharisees, you've missed the point. Instead of asking, how in the world did this paralytic get up and walk? You're ticked because he's carrying his bed on a Sabbath. No, praise God. That's an incredible act. And not only that, you get riled at Christ for healing the guy. On a, you know, come back and heal him tomorrow. They missed the point. Totally. And before you give them too hard a time, how many times have we missed the point? How many times have we missed it? You know, when, when, when somebody walks into your church... And they don't look like they don't dress like a Christian. They look a little rough. How do you respond? Well, we have standards in our church. We don't let that happen. Okay, you're you're no better than the Pharisee. Then I'm sorry. That's right. You're no better than them. Look beyond that. Look be look look beyond your little rule, your little rule book. We pull out the rule book and say they violated rule 58, section 13, paragraph 1. And you miss the point of what's going on. And that's what I find so amazing. The first thing they said, not they were not in awe over the fact that this guy was walking or he was healed. They were mad because he's carrying a bed. On the Sabbath of all things. Horror of horrors that he would do this. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. Now, is that a true statement? No. No, it's not, right? 
That was never part of the original law of God. He never said that. They made it up. See, see, here's the point. This man was not violating God's law. He was violating our rules. Now let's make you now that's one thing we're not very good at making a distinction of. Okay? We're not good at that. When I was growing up, it was a sin to go to a movie. It was okay to watch the same thing on TV five years later. All right. Now, where do you come up with that? We need to be separate from the world, yada, yada, yada. Well, then why do you watch it on TV? Right? Are your parents still living now? Yeah. How they look at that? Same way I do. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking about the Baptist church I grew up in. You're not allowed to go to the movies. You're not allowed to dance. You're not allowed to drink alcohol. You're not allowed to play cards. You're not allowed to smoke cigarettes. All that's sinful, wrong. You know, you're going to burn in hell if you do that kind of stuff. You know, and, all, and we create all of these regulations and rules and all, and none of that's in the scripture. None of that's biblical. Now, there are principles, but the Bible doesn't prohibit alcohol. It prohibits you being drunk. But we missed that point. See, we create our own rules because we want to, you know, we don't want to get close to violating one of God's law. We need to make a distinction. When God says something as, as a command, we obey that. There's, there's no argument on that. But where God has not spoken, you need to chill. If you want to have your conviction, there's no problem with that. But don't make your conviction binding on other people. Because then what do you do? You become a Pharisee. You become one of them. And where you, where you tell people you're sinning not because you violated God's law, but because you violated our rule book. That's not a sin. If I violate your rule book, I'm not sinning. If I violate God's law, I am sinning. There's a, there's a difference there. And the Pharisees, they had the rule books, and boy, did they have them. They couldn't even keep, they couldn't keep them. They couldn't even remember all of them. Yeah. Yep. I'm gl I'm glad I'm not a tax collector like him, and I'm not a I'm not a lawyer like him, and I'm not a prostitute, and I I give tithes and all of this kind of stuff. And God says He went down to His house the way He came, and the guy said, "Be merciful to me, a sinner." Didn't even look up. He went down justified. I mean, we we got it, we got it, and and we're gonna we're gonna see that again and again and again in the Gospel of John. Where Christ is confronting them. Now, now, if something's sin, Christ points it out, right? But what Christ is pointing out is there's a lot of things that they called sins that weren't sins at all. They had just made it up. And we're very good at that. We, we do a fantastic job. You know, when it comes to gray areas and things, we like to make rules and make regulations and all that stuff. Look, if you want to have your convictions, fine. But don't call people sinners if they don't see it exactly your way. All right. Be careful with that. Yeah, Brian. Hey, Alan. I mean, it seems like self-righteousness. I mean, even in, in this church, I've seen. I mean, it seems to be more and more rampant. I mean, uh, in the church, and people are so self-righteous. We like rules. Are 
We like rules and we like comparing ourselves with other people to make ourselves look like we're more godly than we are. We there's a there's an there's an insidious innate tendency in ourselves to do that. And the Pharisees did that. And see that's why they rejected Christ by and large. They rejected him because he did not keep their rule book. So by definition, he's not right. Because we of course know that we got all the right answers. Be careful. You realize you don't have all the right answers? You really don't. And the Pharisees' problem was they figured when the Messiah would show up, the first thing he would do is go up and pat them on the back and congratulate them for being so good and godly that when Christ showed up and he didn't do that, obviously he's of the devil because if he was the Messiah, he would see how godly we are. And since we're in Malachi, in Malachi, God is talking and he basically says, you know, he says, everybody's looking for me to come back. Let me tell you, when I come back and I start my judgment, guess where I'm going to start? I'm starting at the house of God and working my way out. And I said, it's like you walk into a room full of a bunch of kids screaming and hollering and throwing things. Which kids do you go after first? Your own. Don't be, and, and basically what God is saying in Malachi there, he said, don't be too, don't be too, uh, don't have too much anticipation for me to show up thinking that I'm going to show up and congratulate you and pat you on the back and, and congratulate how great you are. I'm going to start with judgment and I'm starting with you. And if you barely get by, <laughs> what's going to happen to the others? So I think self-righteousness comes from like a false confidence. God hates it. It's pride, it's arrogance. If you're saying, um, God owes me something, under, God owes you hell. That's what God owes you. All right. And they never understood. The Pharisees believed that God owed them heaven. He owed them heaven. God doesn't owe you anything but hell. And, he, and you see this again and again and again and again. It just, it's a recurrent theme throughout the Gospels, and you see them, and I'm just amazed, I'm amazed at their reaction here, seeing a guy who for 38 years laying on a bed, and then you see him walking, the first thing you do is want to criticize him because he's carrying his bed on the Sabbath day. And I'm thinking, boy, like a lot of the Christians I've known in my life, and he says, look, he says, the one who made me whole told me to take up my bed and walk. So by definition, it was not a sin because Christ told him to do it, right? Then he said, who is this man who said you take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, multitude being in that place. Jesus healed the guy and made a fast exit, and the guy didn't know who it was. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see... You have been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. Christ saw him later on in the temple, and it's interesting. He said, don't sin anymore, lest something worse come upon you. Evidently, why was this man paralyzed? Some sin that he had done. All right, some sin. Now, is every disease caused by somebody's sin? No. No, no let's get away from that, right? Yeah, yeah that, that's that's some of the guys on TBN that say every time you see somebody with a disease, there's a demon in them. And if you get the demon out of them, they'll be healed. That's that's hokey. That's no. Some sin is some disease is caused by sin, but not every disease is caused by sin. 
Evidently, this man had done something that caused him to be paralyzed. You know, an interesting statement there, too. He told him to sin no more. Right. But, you know, when you think about it, you know, there's... You look at it from the Baptist perspective. There's none righteous, none not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If we say we're without sin, we're a liar. Mm -hmm. Yet here we see Christ giving a direct command this man to sin no more. Can you elaborate on that? Well, I think it's the same thing that he told the woman taken in adultery, which I think, again, we'll argue about it when we get there. I think it's a true story. I don't think John, it's part of the Gospel of John, but it's a true story where he told her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What sin is he talking about? Sin in general? And what was the sin that she was in? Right. Well, I mean, it's a particular statement to that sin, but it's also a broad statement in the fact that all sin is bad. All sin is bad. All sin is bad. Yes. And I think what Christ is telling this man here is this man, I think there was a sin that this man knew, or was pretty evidently knew, caused his condition. And Christ saying, go and don't sin anymore lest something worse happens to you. I think that's the gist here. Because technically, could that man in and of himself decide, I'm not going to sin again the rest of my life. Any, not any more than you can. <laughs> All right. But I do think there there is a target, right? We don't want to yeah. sin. We should not want to sin. And there's even evidence, and I think maybe MacArthur brings it out, that, that there's a hint that this man truly was not only healed physically, but was a true believer. The reason I ask that, because you know, none of us are going to be perfect in our lives. But yet that perfect standard is up there that Christ lives. And here Christ is telling him to sin no more. So if he's giving that directive knowing he can't, why would he tell him not to? Or else he looked at the man and told him to do something that he couldn't do. Either that or he actually meant for him no longer to commit that sin. Right. I think I think it's no longer to commit that sin with the indication there are some diseases caused by sins. You gotta understand my background, because I come from a yeah. holiness background. That's how I was raised up. I don't okay. know if you're familiar with that. I am. And you know, all my life I've been taught to live above sin. Now, you, you strive to do that, but you can never do that in your own no. friends. We're, we're out of time. Yeah, I met a guy, you know, one time, he, Jed Smock, he's, he still probably comes up over in college once in a while. Mm -hmm. He's one of these preachers that travel around, call him Brother Jed. Came and we went out to lunch or dinner afterwards and talking to him and he said, he said, yeah, he says, you know, I haven't sinned in 25 years. I don't believe that. And I said, well, you just did. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's the way it is with a believer. We don't want to sin. We don't have to sin. We're not forced to sin, but we do because of the weakness of the flesh. And we do. What do we do? We repent. But as we mature in our life, what should happen to the frequency of sin? Should go down. We're never going to hit, folks. You're never going to hit perfection. Not on this side of heaven. No, unless you're a vegetable in a hospital, you're not going to be sinless. All right. The only it's it's God. I mean, you, I mean, you want to strive for that, but you'll never hit that. And it says here, for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought Jews persecuted him, sought to kill him because he'd done these things on the Sabbath. Think of that. Yeah. He healed a guy, and their thought is we're going to kill him because he did it on a Sabbath day. Think about that. Well, we're out of time. Father, thanks for this time and for the discussion and for 
this word, and I pray that you help us ponder its truths. Thank you for this time that we've shared together in Christ's name. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.